2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's on page 818 in the Bible you would have received on your way in this evening. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I have believed, therefore I have spoken. With that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Amen. Um, now, what I was wondering, I suppose, uh, before we go, and it's evident that the uh, speaker wasn't on there before, so it's just a good thing that I have a really booming voice, isn't it, so that you can all hear me. All those criticisms that I ever got in class, well, they've all come home to roost now, haven't they? Um, so thank you to the technicians for that, and I'm sorry if I didn't do a run-through beforehand. Um, on that note, uh, considering I'm evidently in need of prayer, why don't we do that now?
Uh, dear God and Father, we, we do thank you for uh, all that you give us. We thank you that you speak to us. And we thank you that you've spoken to us just then when the Bible was read to us. We find it hard to listen to you. So please help us do that tonight. Amen. I don't know if as a Christian you've ever found yourself losing heart. It might look different. It might look a, there might be a few different ways this losing heart might look. Maybe you became a Christian and in, there was a great flurry of activity and excitement. It started so well and everyone who you could meet, you were telling about Jesus. You were reading your Bible more than you've ever read it before. The words just seemed to simply leap off the page at you. And every day seemed like a new opportunity to serve this new and wonderful God whom you had met for the very first time. But then as time wore on and as weeks turned into months, turned into years, the temperature cooled. That time when you were full of enthusiasm and conviction gradually began to peter off. You took a few knocks in life. Gradually, it simply began to lose heart. Maybe that's not your picture. Maybe you're, and I suspect probably like most of us, certainly like me, you're kind of subject to what C.S. Lewis used to call the law of undulation. You just kind of go up and down. You're going great guns for a while, and then you get a knock and you start going downhill. But something picks you up again and then, well, you're down again. You might be in one of those valleys right now where you kind of have lost heart. You might be in one of those peaks, and that's great. But maybe you've been through enough peaks and troughs that even the peaks now don't seem quite so good because you know that the downward descent is only so far away. Or maybe you're not losing heart. Maybe if you're really honest, you've just lost it. Maybe you've actually lost heart. You're just going through the motions. You're, the bicycle's still moving, but it's just momentum. You stopped pedaling a while ago. And that might be for a few reasons. Maybe it's because you being a Christian doesn't really seem to have helped anyone. Your efforts at evangelism, spreading the gospel to your friends and neighbours and the people you've not even met, have met resistance and failure. Your works of kindness, which you know God wants you to do, have gone unnoticed and unheeded. That you pray and pray and pray for that family member or colleague or friend, and yet they remain soundly, convincedly, firmly unconverted. You don't really seem to have helped anyone. Your being a Christian doesn't seem to have made a difference. Or maybe even worse, maybe you're losing heart because not only does you being a Christian not seem to have done anyone else any good, maybe it's done people harm. Firstly, it might have done you harm. You've become a Christian and as a result, life has actually become a good deal more difficult, maybe, than you even expected. 
there's that vague sense of distance that's opened up between you and your mum as you have less and less in common. Or you and your colleagues at work are sitting around at a lunch and comparing wonderful life experiences, how X climbed Aconcagua and Y went river boating down the Zambezi River. And, well, you actually just stayed at home and helped at church. Or that growing sense of exhaustion as church jobs pile up and up and up. And how when Jesus' words take up my yoke, for it's easy, and my burden is light. Where that once seemed like a comfort, now seems like a, a joke in slightly poor taste. Or maybe as you become a Christian, it has served to only show up your flaws in even sharper relief than you ever knew them before. It hurts. Harmed you. And maybe you feel that fact harms others. That as you become increasingly aware of how mundane, how banal, just how sinful you are, you think to yourself, what kind of an advertisement for Jesus am I? How could Jesus possibly do anything with me? It would actually be much better for all concerned, not least of all Jesus. If I just kept quiet, because frankly, no one is going to look at me and see God doing anything. Well, I want to say you're not alone. You're not alone at all, because I think we see from the pages of Scripture that Paul, the apostle, he has exactly the same things. He's got good reason to lose heart too. You look through the pages of the Acts of the Apostles and the letters, well, his ministry seemed to fail left, right and centre. Paul could preach his heart out for years, months in a city at a time, and see very few conversions. He could raise a whole church in Corinth, like the one we see here, only to have them turn on him in suspicion and start craving more impressive leaders. Not only did his ministry frequently seem to fail, it actually seemed to do more harm than good sometimes. It certainly hurt him physically, if you've been here, you'll see that the background of this letter is that Paul has moved out of Ephesus, which is in Turkey, up to Macedonia, just north of Corinth, preparing for his return to this church. But we haven't actually covered why he left there. Is it because he'd, his ministry had finished in a climactic triumph with churches planted all over the city? No, he'd started a riot. People had driven him out of town. In fact, he had to be lowered out of, a, uh, out of the wall in a basket, hidden, naked, it was hardly a triumphant exit. And you can understand how, if you were Paul, you might think that all of that had hurt the cause of the God, the man whom he was serving, Jesus. Because he hardly seems like that much of an advertisement for the gospel. You see, it could be for Paul, and I think often is for us, sometimes if we're really honest, it seems like becoming a a Christian was just the worst decision we ever made. It doesn't seem to work. It just seems to cause hurt to me, to other people. Wouldn't it be better if we just packed our bags and slowly slipped out the back door? 
Paul had every reason to lose heart. Sometimes we feel the same way. And yet Paul doesn't. Why? Why doesn't Paul lose heart when he has every reason to? Well, this passage answers that question. And in beautiful terms. We're going to look at it, we can't possibly sum up everything this passage has to say, but we're just going to look at it in two points. If you're a note taker and you find this kind of thing helpful, the two points are simply these. Treasure and jars of clay. Treasure and jars of clay. You'll need your Bibles open, so please look at them as we come to our first point, looking at verses 1 to 6, treasure. And the reason that Paul, the first reason that Paul doesn't lose heart is this. Because he had a treasure, Jesus Christ. Paul didn't lose heart because he, at the very centre of his being, had a treasure hidden inside of him, and that treasure was Jesus Christ. If you were here last week, you will have seen that Paul has just been talking about the glory of the ministry of Jesus, that it's so much better than anything that the rules and regulations of the Old Testament had to offer, that rather than simply condemning although that was a right thing for the Old Testament to do, rather the ministry of the Spirit of Jesus brings life. It frees people. It changes people. Real and lasting change to people's lives. It's a wonderful ministry. And because of that ministry, he doesn't lose heart. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. But what about when it doesn't make real and lasting change in people's lives. What about then? Why doesn't he lose heart then? If it's so glorious, why do so many people who he preaches it to still reject it? And we've all felt that way sometimes, haven't we, I think? We've all felt sometimes, well, I need to tinker with this message to make it work. So you invite your friend along to the evangelistic church event. Maybe it's Christmas carols or whatever. I mean, you can substitute your own life experience for that. And you were pretty straight up and down about it. You just said, look, I'm not going to play games with you. Come along. It's a Christmas carols event. I'm using this as the example. You'll hear a gospel presentation. It might be uncomfortable for you, but it's really worth thinking about. Come along. And they come along. And yes, it is uncomfortable for them. No, they don't like it. And it's all a bit tense after that. And so the next time you think, right, okay, you steal yourself, I'm going to make this, I'm going to do this. And so you come back to them, but you've realised that just presenting Jesus, well, that's not such a good line. So you try and soft pedal it a bit. Come along to the carols. Great singing. You should hear the musicians. They are awesome. They are. We've got a beautiful big church and something will be mentioned about Jesus. There's something about it where you... You try and cover up the nasty bits. You try and talk up the good bits. Oh, you're from that church in Kirribilli. Oh, that's right. You're the ones who do all the food kitchens. You have the community lunch. You're really active in the community. That's fantastic. And you're there going, yeah, that's absolutely right. What is it that you guys believe? Well, you know, we're kind of about helping people, I guess. Uh, You know, Jesus helped people, loved people. Absolutely. It's good. Jesus, good. Yeah, loved helping people. Sin, hell... I think there's something in the Bible about that, yeah. We get the temptation to water things down. But it's a bit deceptive, isn't it? Because really, you're just luring people in on the pretense that Jesus doesn't say hard things. 
And yet Paul refuses to do that. Look at verse 2. We haven't lost heart. Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. See, he doesn't lose confidence in the gospel. And why doesn't he lose confidence in the gospel? Even when people don't believe it? Well, the answer's there in verses 3 to 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, even if people don't believe it, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see, in many ways, it's, it's not actually the fault of the message that people don't believe. It's that people have been blinded. You see, Paul and God through Paul, he says something quite radical about human nature here. People are not just blind to the glory of Jesus. They are blinded. Someone has blinded them. The resistance to God is not just a product of their own decision. Rather, they're under the influence of the God of this age, which I think when you look through the context of Scripture is a spiritual being which the Bible calls Satan. Now, at this stage, you might be saying, right, okay, now back up. This is weird. To clarify that, I want to make clear, I'm not talking about possession. I'm not talking that you can spot these people a mile away by the rolling eyes backwards or that kind of thing. No, 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 no. All the Bible is saying is that this world has rejected God. It has moved away from him and has left itself open to the other powers in the universe that have also rejected him. Think about a coup in a Pacific island. When the military first rolls in, there is outrage that the democratically elected government has been overposed. And yet as time goes on, as people become increasingly used to the generals and the field marshals who take control, they slowly forget that there ever was a democratically elected government. And they began to confuse the tyrants who took their country over for the real ruler. And that's what's happened in this world. This world has rejected God. And as a result has become enslaved Enslaved to a general principle of rejection and enslaved to other spiritual beings which have enjoined in that rejection. See, just as a sidelight, it's important for evangelism, isn't it, to bear this in mind. Because we need to know, not in a patronizing way, because we were all there once, if you're a Christian, we need to know that there's something outside of people's control when they reject Jesus. People are in bondage. Christians so often look at non-Christians as in some ways the enemy, people to be besieged and conquered. But that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. We're all people. We're all in the same predicament. And we all needed freeing. We need to pray for people that they might be freed. You see, not everyone who hears the gospel will respond to it positively. But no one who hears a watered-down version will respond to it at all. And that's precisely why Paul refuses to change the message. You can see it there in verse 5. For we don't preach ourselves, as tempting as that would be, 
as tempting as it would be to water it down and to have people come to him as a gifted speaker, a gifted leader. Why don't I just preach that? I know that'll get the numbers in. No, we don't preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. You see, ultimately, the reason that Paul doesn't water down the message is it doesn't work. There's only one way to see God, and that's Jesus. And if you don't present Jesus, then no matter how uncomfortable, people cannot know God. So, Kira Billy, we mustn't lose heart. We mustn't lose confidence in the message of Jesus Christ and start resorting to dishonest or covert means to get people in. We can't be dishonest. And no amount of overly professional marketing or slick merchandising or evasive coolness will ever lead anyone to God. You might as well let people know up front what they're in for when they're investigating Jesus. Because it's only he who has the power to save. And it's dishonest and patronizing to do anything else. But also take heart when those conversations do seem to go a bit belly up. Because it's not your fault. It's not your job to convert people. It's God's work. And only God can do it. And if I were you, and I am me, I'd be putting my confidence in him rather than me. So that's the treasure. Which leads me to the jars of clay. Paul has in himself a glittering prize, a treasure. Jesus Christ, in whose face is seen the very glory of God, whom he would never give away for anything, not deception, not deceit, nothing. And yet, the packaging... Well, it's not so hot. Paul doesn't lose heart because he has a treasure, Jesus Christ. But Paul doesn't also lose heart because by his weakness, that treasure is made to look even brighter. You see, because you might well accept that the ministry of Jesus, preaching the gospel as hard as that is, is the only way to go, and that's fine. But you might still lose heart simply because you're suffering. You lose heart because you just feel battered. Being a Christian is hard work. And you feel bad because your batteredness seems like a bad advertisement for the gospel. Now Paul uses a great image to convey this idea of the battered person. It's a treasure, the treasure of the good news of Jesus stored where? In an amazing display case? In an enormous bank? No, in a clay pot the most common of all first century vessels. You can see it there in verse 7. But we have this treasure, Jesus, in jars of clay. I want to let that sink into you. Imagine if you were given an enormous glittering diamond and you were asked to take it home and display it. But all you had to display it in was a styrofoam cup. 
do you think he'd be a bit sheepish as the diamond got passed over? Would you think twice about taking the diamond home at all? Would you feel a bit embarrassed saying, well, I can't possibly do this diamond justice. I haven't even got one of those little velvet things to put it on. I've got a cup made of styrofoam. Do you think you'd hand it back? Well, Paul feels the same, like a jar of clay. And he feels like a jar of clay because, well, he has been battered. You can see it there all through these verses here in verses 8, 9, 10. We're hard-pressed on every side, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. Verse 10, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. Verse 11, for we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. He's had a hard life. And the gospel has got him into this predicament. He's a genuinely weak man. But here's the thing. That brokenness, that weakness, doesn't detract from the value of the treasure. It enhances it. How? Because it makes sure that all of the glory of the gospel goes to God and not to us. You see, because I didn't finish off reading verse 7, did I? But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You see, if Paul were impressive, people might be tempted to put their trust in him and not in God. You see, it happened now with celebrity preachers. People are attracted to their ministry and it all seems so exciting. They're gathering a buzz and then the celebrity preacher moves on. And the church just withers almost as quickly. Because it turns out in the end they were following the amazing orator. Not the Jesus who they preached. I've noticed with great relief that there's yet another home renovation show on television. Uh, the greatest home renovation show ever. It's good because I'm just not quite sure if we had enough. And I imagine that the houses they'll be renovating will be pretty dumpy. And I'm guessing that there won't be any mansions. Why? Because it's pretty easy to renovate a mansion. It doesn't really say much about the skill of the carpenter or the reno, the reno person, whatever they're called, to do up a, you know, a five-story, four-bathroom, 15-bedroom, you know, metropolis. But if you've got a bedsit with no toilet... There's a bit more about the renovator, doesn't it? See, God doesn't pick mansions. He picks us. We're not the mansion. We're the bedsit. And that makes God look great. Because God's strength is shown best in weak people. And it's not just the weakness itself which makes God look good. It's the fact that those weak people can bear up under enormous strain despite their weakness against all the odds that God shows his incredible power. Because you notice what he says there in in verses 8 onwards. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. 
We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be also revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life might be revealed in our mortal body. Time and again, Paul, a clay jar, a cracked pot, a bedsit with no loo, gets hammered. Hammered because of his faith in Jesus. And time and again, this weak, perplexed, confused, short, you know, tired man, he gets up on his feet again. Not because he's an amazingly resilient guy, but because he has the power of Jesus working in him and shown through him. John Wesley was one of the greatest Christian preachers of all time, I would say. He preached upwards of 40,000 sermons in his life. But he did it tough. He was a member of the Church of England, this church here, and yet he was very rarely allowed to preach inside a church because he insisted on preaching the gospel. He'd be frequently locked out of churches he'd come to preach at, and so he would just go out to the graveyard and preach there. When he was evicted from the graveyards and hounded out of towns, he would go and preach in fields. He would preach between two and three times a day, and it's estimated that in doing that, he rode a quarter of a million miles on horseback. He was married at the old age of 48, or the older age of 48, and had a very unhappy marriage for 15 years, in which, it sounds almost comic if it weren't so sad, he suffered domestic violence at the hands of his wife, until they were divorced 15 years later. He suffered from profound doubts. I do not love God. I never did. Therefore, I never believed in the Christian sense of the word. Therefore, I am only an honest heathen. And yet, to be so employed by God. In 1791, he died. A pauper. And yet, through that man, countless thousands of people came to know Christ. friend of mine, Mary, much less famous. You've never heard of her. Very few people have. She's at my old church in Tassie. She's had depression for as long as she can remember. I don't know how many times she's attempted in at least a half-hearted way to commit suicide. I was back in Tassie oh, a couple of years ago and I came up to her and I said, how are you doing? And she had such a smile on her face. She said, I've had such a good year. I've only had to check myself into the psych ward twice. I remember leading a Bible study with her as the stress and the strain of the week built up and she took pill after pill after pill and I gradually saw her overdose in front of me. She's constantly being evicted from her flat because she just can't get it together to pay her bills. Two different very stories very different stories are they but the point is this it's the same power at work in both people God supported John Wesley God continues to support Mary when anyone else would have crumbled it is a powerful testimony to the power of Christ so what are we to make of all this just three things. It's okay not to have it all together. 
I don't know if you heard me, so I'll say it again. It is okay not to have it all together. I'm not sure if you heard that because you haven't heard it from anywhere else. The cosmetics companies don't tell you that. The magazine companies don't tell you that. Better Homes and Gardens doesn't tell you that. Your parents may not tell you that. Your friends may not tell you that. But I want to tell you tonight, only because Jesus tells you through his scriptures, it's okay. It is okay not to have it all together. Because God is glorified in your weakness. And that means that we can stop pretending to have it all together. You can stop. Get off the treadmill. It's exhausting. We pretend for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes we pretend because we're proud. Sometimes we pretend because we think we're letting the team down. Because we think, how could anyone believe in the power of Christ if he saw the mess in my life? Well, this passage radically reorientates our thinking. Imagine how much God could use your life if you haven't got it together. I want to ask you, how are you doing on that? We're a pretty trendy church. Fair to say, we're the trendiest church I've ever been to. We all look pretty good. We're young, up and coming, beautiful. I mean, just look at me. We dress well. We've got good jobs by and large. You can imagine coming along here and being pretty impressed by the power of God that he's able to put me in a jumper. It's not wrong to look good. But do you feel comfortable to come here not dressed well? If someone asks you how you are, how many times do they need to ask you before you'll actually answer? Actually answer. If you were talking with a friend here tonight and it all just became too much and you burst into tears, would you have to leave? Or do you think that you could be safe while people were watching you? We've got to give it up. Because if we don't, people will think that this church is just another upwardly mobile, yuppie institution. They will not see the power of God here. Because God came to fix broken lives. That is where God's power is seen. And until we are honest with that, until we can admit that we have a treasure, but we are clay pots, God will glorify himself through someone else. But if you are having a hard time, take comfort. God will never give you anything more than you can bear. Paul was crushed, but he wasn't destroyed. He was perplexed, but he never fell into despair. And if you're feeling like that, if you're feeling like you just can't go on, won't you pray? Won't you pray to God and ask him to help you? Won't you pray to God that he would show you 
that his power and your good are made perfect in weakness. And that there is light at the end of the tunnel. That is good news. Why wouldn't we preach that to this suburb? Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we, um, we find it so hard to admit our failings. We find it so hard to admit that we are broken people. We find it so tempting to exchange the gospel for something else. And we're sorry for that. But we do thank you that in the face of Jesus we can see your glory and hence we should not lose heart. And we know that the massive contrast between Jesus' glory and our just the way we live, that actually gives you glory. We pray please help us to accept the fact that we are broken people and that only you can make us whole, that your power is shown through our weakness. Please forgive us our pride. Please comfort us if we feel out of place, if we feel like we can't come to church because we haven't got it together. Please convince us that church is the only place for people who haven't got it together. We pray please comfort us as we do do it tough. We thank you that in the end it is going to be all right because Jesus